Welcome to Walking in Faith, a weekly podcast dedicated to examining the Bible to help lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God expand their faith and understanding by exploring God's Word. Now let's join Pastor Rob Currington as he shares this week's message. Let's take your Bible, if you would, and turn to Luke. We're going to finish out Luke chapter 14 today, and then we're going to be taking a break during the summer uh, with a little bit different uh, avenue from Luke. But Luke chapter, tw- uh, Luke chapter 14, we're going to be looking at verses 25 through 35 as we consider the importance of due diligence, the importance of doing our due diligence. <clears throat> as you turn in, let me share with you a couple scenarios. Jerry has attended church his whole life. His first time in the church nursery was four days, only four days after his birth. He attended church three times a week. He went to the Christian school. He went to every VBS and every revival meeting, some that would last four to five days. He asked Jesus into his heart in junior church when he was seven and baptized soon after. Soon after high school graduation, he began to drift away from the church, and he found himself hanging around a different crowd than he had grown up with. It wasn't too long before he began to entertain himself with all the things that he was taught was sinful. And though he struggled with doubts about his salvation, he would always remember how his mother told him he was saved while he was in the second grade. Eventually, his life spiraled out of control, and he found himself alienated from everything he had learned and professed so many years ago. But whenever his conscience would convict him of his lifestyle, he would convince himself that he was still saved and will go to heaven one day. Laura, like Jerry, had never known a time when she didn't attend church. Her life was filled with activities that reinforced her church's belief. Now married, she has continued to attend church with her husband and growing family, though not at the same level of engagement as her parents. She considers herself a good Christian and a good person, yet church and the things of God seem to take a backseat to her family's needs, her personal pursuits, and enjoying life that they're building together. Most of her friends and neighbors do not even know that she goes to church or professes to be a Christian. Thomas, on the other hand, never went to church. His parents were negligent at best, as both struggled with addictions and poor health. His father left the family years ago, and his mom barely held it together. Thomas spent his 14th birthday in juvenile detention for stealing some food for him and his little sister. He also spiraled into a losing battle of drugs and a life of crime, as his parents did. He spent the majority of his adult life in prison, becoming a hardened criminal who never was concerned about the things of God. That was until one day when he was introduced to Jesus by a new cellmate. Eventually, he began to attend attend chapel meetings because it got him out of the cell for a few hours a day. Though he was impacted by the teachings of the Bible and the love of the prison chaplain, He could not bring himself to accept the fact that God would forgive him and love him and adopt him as one of his own children. However, after 40 years in prison and a lifetime of crime and selfish pursuits, he finally came to the realization that God would forgive him and adopt him as his child. And with tears 
Running down his face between sobs of relief and joy, Thomas professed Christ one day. Shortly after receiving the devil, he received devastating news that he had inoperable cancer, cancer and died soon after that profession of faith. Considering those three people, which of these people would you say are truly genuine Christians? Which ones demonstrated true conversion? Maybe your testimony is similar to the one above. Of course, we do not know each and every heart, and we must be careful in assuming the eternal destiny of anyone, yet Scripture has been, hasn't been silent on this issue. John, the beloved disciple, encourages his readers to these things I write to you, speaking of the, the gospel. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. So we can know truly if we are a Christian. The question I want to ask you this morning is, are you truly a Christian? Are you a true follower of Christ? What does it mean to be a disciple of Christ. So here's the problem, because many of you would probably say, yes, I'm a Christian. My, my children are Christians. My parents are Christians. I've been a Christian from the womb like Jeremiah. But here's the problem. There have been too many who profess Christ, but are not real, genuine Christians. The profession of false, or their profession of faith, is actually false. And there may be various reasons why that is true, but we do know from Christ's warning in Matthew that not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So these are the words of Jesus. Not everyone who proclaims me, who makes a profession of faith, who says that they have submitted to me, will make it into heaven. Now this is a serious accusation and a warning. Now, these people respond by declaring, wait, we, we did do the will of the Father. We, we cast out demons. We prophesied and preached in his name. And we did other mighty works. Yet Jesus responds, you know the response, right? I never knew you. Depart from me, ye workers of iniquity. Notice that he doesn't argue with them and say, no, you didn't do mighty works. You didn't cast out demons. You didn't prophesy. No, they, they did all of those things. Judas did all of those things. But in the end, he betrayed Christ. His profession of faith was false. He was not a true disciple of Christ. Our vision here at Orange Villa Bible Church is to develop lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God. That's when, wherever you're coming, we want you to seek his kingdom. You know, Matthew 6, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And we accomplish that by fulfilling the mission that Jesus gave his disciples at his ascension when he said, go you therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. If we are commanded to make disciples, then you and I need to understand what it means to be a disciple, how one becomes a disciple, as well as the requirements and the expectations of a disciple. Regrettably, I believe that there are churches filled with pews of those who profess to be disciples but truly are not. 
Too many churches have abandoned the true gospel of repentance and adopted the false gospel of moralistic therapeutic deism. This is a false gospel and can be identified with five core truths. You'll see them up here on the screen. First, they believe a God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. So, so there is a God. The second is that God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. Right now, that the word, the key word that's going around circles is, is Christians must be winsome. We need to be good. We need to be kind. We should not be judging. We should not make discernments. Number three, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. That, that's moralistic therapy. That's the words of Joel Olstein. Let every day be like Friday. What is that about? Well, let every day be like, hey, I'm getting off work and I'm going to enjoy the weekend. Number four, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. So really, when it comes to Christianity, the church, or prayer, it's like behind the fire holes over here, you break when in danger, and you grab it out and you pray. That's who God is. He's behind the glass, he looks pretty, he's nice, but we only get it out in an emergency. Number five, Good people go to heaven when they die. And I, I, I think if most people took a, a poll, most people say, yeah, good people who die go to heaven. But I have to share with you that that's not biblical. That that's not true. That is a false gospel. That is the, the major teaching of most churches today. We have confused, now get this, we have confused fruitfulness for faithfulness. Let me say it again. We have confused fruitfulness for faithfulness, meaning that just because there are churches with thousands of people, and today there are churches that have five, six, seven, eight, ten thousand people, multiple services, multi-site, we believe that those are fruitful churches. But let me tell you that just because churches are, are filled with thousands of people, entertaining music, engaging motivational talks, and exciting children programs doesn't mean that they are making disciples of Christ. But we also must not make the error by assuming that just because a church is small like us, or smaller, that it's also faithful in making disciples of Christ. They may be making disciples of something or someone, but they're not necessarily making disciples of Christ. That must not be assumed. Another sad state of church is that many have confused convincing someone to say the sinner's prayer or to ask Jesus into their heart is making disciples. They pride themselves in putting another notch in their gospel gun but they never engage in leading their converts to a deeper understanding of the things of God. Remember being at a church and the pastor is standing up and he's saying, well, how many of you won someone to the Lord today? All right, George, how many? You had two, good job. Okay. Anybody else? Oh, I led, you led three people? Wow, you led seven people to and they just going down the list. And at the end, they had a hundred and some people in that church that were led to Christ. They said the sinner's prayer. They made a decision for Christ. And so then they walk off and they think that they saved those people. Those people are going now to go to heaven. But as I look around, my question is, of those people, how many of them 
are in church today? How many of them came to church with? How many of them are you making disciples? See, we've confused evangelism with just getting someone to say a prayer, to repeat after me these words, to ask Jesus into your heart. But that's not what discipleship is. Pastor J.D. Greer, in his book, Stop Asking Jesus Into Your Heart, laments that because of some childhood prayer, there are tens of thousands of people are absolutely certain of a salvation that they do not possess. And so me, I know I'm going to get to you this morning, but I want to share you, I'm sharing this out of love. Because my desire is that when we do go to heaven, whether it's because of death or Jesus comes again, that if we're standing together as a group, that I can look and say, yes, those people are truly disciples of Christ. I want no one to meet Christ and think that they are saved when they're not. I want you to know this morning how you can know if you are a Christian. Jesus understood this concept pretty fully. As his popularity continues to grow, he's always surrounded by a crowd of people claiming to be disciples and worshipers of God with Yahweh. Last week we read how he warned one religious leader of the folly of sentimentality concerning the things of God. He, he loved the things of God without realizing the reality of the precarious standing of their false faith. As he warned them that none of those men who were invited to my banquet shall taste of my banquet. So with that, we come to Luke chapter 14. Jesus is still speaking in this vein. Look at verse 25. It is here on the monitor, uh, but I encourage you to bring your Bibles if you can. Luke writes, now great crowds accompanying him and turn and, and Jesus turned to them and said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciples. Underline that word or circle. He cannot be my disciple. Look at verse 27, underline this. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Father, with that, those are strong words, so help us to understand them. Father, I want to do a, a, an encouraging word, but yes, also a challenging word. Maybe a rebuke might be necessary, maybe a, a word of, of love and encouragement, of kindness. But yet we want to uh, uh, tackle your word and understand it fully. We thank you for your word that you've given us. I thank you for this session, this passage in Luke. And Lord, I pray that we would all look and do our due diligence of whether or not our faith, our profession of faith, is true and genuine. Lord, may we rejoice in that fact this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. Now, Luke now moves the setting from the dinner at the religious leaders where we've been for the last few weeks back to on the road as Jesus is traveling to Jerusalem in his divine appointment at the cross. And while walking along the road, Jesus noticed that the great crowds once again are following him. You know, he's being pressed all the time. Remember, it was very difficult for him to ever find any time alone. And he decides that this is a good time to begin winnowing that crowd down, to, to make it a little bit smaller. 
Luke, throughout his gospel, has pointed out the popularity of Jesus. Great crowds gathered wherever he went, mingled with his disciples who traveled with him. The crowd included all sorts of people, just like in a church, it may include a lot of sorts of people. There was those that were hoping to be cured from a disease, an illness, or maybe a demonic oppression. There was those that were curious about him and desirous to see what the fuss is all about. There were those who wanted to use his popularity for their own purposes, whether it was political, religious, cultural, so on and so forth. There were those who constantly criticized his message and were just following to find some fault with him so they could arrest him or even kill him. And then there were those who truly believed that he was the Messiah, the anointed one of the Lord, and they were committed to follow him and listen to what he taught. And Jesus here understood the difference between an appreciative but fickle crowd and committed faithful disciples. It was the latter, the faithful disciples, that he he was devoted to instructing and preparing them. Preparing them for a mission that would change the world and set free those who were oppressed. He would not be deterred from fulfilling the task of redeeming all of God's children. We had learned last week that not everyone who say that they love the kingdom of God actually do. Not everyone who professes to be a Christ follower truly is one. There are always goats among the sheep and there's always weeds among the wheat. The key is how to tell the difference and how to determine whether those who falsely portray Christ are deceiving just themselves or are they truly just trying to deceive others. There's a difference. There are many of you here today that may believe that you have professed Christ, but truly haven't. But then there may be some of you here that are just saying that you profess Christ, but you know you haven't. And there's two types of groups. To answer this question, Jesus states that there's some requirements and expectations for those who truly decide to follow Jesus. He makes a startling statement that whoever follows him must hate his family and his own life. Now, this is a sock, <clears throat> excuse me. This is a shocking condition that makes one pause and think, what in the world is Jesus saying here? I mean, one of the marks of a true religious or a true follower of Christ is to love one another just as we love each other. We're to be kind, we're to be uh, not anger, we're to be forgiving. So how can we hate? someone else. One of the marks of rebellion against creator is hate. Jesus warns that in the last days that the love of many will grow cold, while Paul warns that in the last days people will be lovers of their self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, uh, unholy, heartless, so on and so forth. Claiming or having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. What, What is going on here? What is Jesus saying? The mark of a true believer is to love our neighbor. So what does Jesus mean when he warns that if we do not hate our family, we cannot be his disciples? What Jesus is doing here is using hyperbole to grab his listeners' attention. He's not dictating that his disciples are to hate or detest their family, but that the cost of following him will take priority over their family. It will take precedence over their family, prominence over their family. Of all of their energy and focus is to be on the things of Christ, not on the things of this world. This commitment also includes our own lives. It includes our happiness, our dreams, our aspirations, and our desires. 
In this warning, we read that Jesus requires a personal response and demands the complete devotion of his disciples. The personal response is that of an acknowledgement that Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one of God, and complete devotion is set forth in those three commands to hate his life or to deny himself, to bear in his cross and to come and follow him. Every disciple must deny himself. To deny means to disown, to repudiate, to renounce and disregard. Daryl Block uh, remarks that the essence of discipleship is humility before God that expresses itself as self-denial. To confess Christ is to acknowledge his authority and true identity as the Lord and King of all things. To deny ourselves is to repudiate our rights and privileges. One pastor remarks that as Christians, we will not set our desires and our will against the right Christ has to our lives. Scripture informs us that we were once slaves to sin and our, and our passions, but now we're slaves to Christ and his righteousness. Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to Philippians 3. In this passage, the Apostle Paul exemplifies one who has denied himself as he writes of his heritage. Philippians in the New Testament near the end of the Bible. Philippians chapter 3. Look with me in verse 3. Paul writes, For we are the circumcision, speaking of Jews, we are Jews, who worship by the Spirit of God and the glory of Christ, and we put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason or co- reason for confidence in the flesh. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh and who he is, I have more. I've been circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews. As to the law, I'm a Pharisee. As to the zeal, I'm a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, I'm blameless. But look at what he says. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ my Lord. You may want to underline that phrase. Great phrase. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Every disciple must take up his cross daily. To bear one's own cross means to be ready to encounter any extremity or voluntary suffering. The cross was an instrument of extreme punishment reserved for the worst of criminals. It involved a long death, a long and cruel death. To carry a cross was a one-way journey. In another passage on this topic, Jesus qualifies his command by noting that this must be done daily, every day. Let me share with you, to be a disciple of cross or a disciple of Christ means that there are no days off. There are no breaks. There is no compromise with the world or your own sinful desires that still remain in us. We are to be ever diligent We are to give no occasion for the flesh to enjoy its sinful pursuits. Taking up the cross and following Jesus paints a word picture of a man who's condemned and forced to carry his own cross to his execution. In essence, Jesus tells his disciples to pick up an instrument of torture. The cross evokes a vivid and horrifying image of a death march with all of its shameful publicity. By evoking this imagery, theologian France notes that Jesus is calling for a radical abandonment of one's own identity and self-determination and a call to join the march 
to a place of execution. Jesus has called us to die. A disciple, a follower of Jesus, is one who denies himself through the picking up of his cross. It involves a radical choice that goes against our very nature. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his book, The Cost Discipleship, writes that when Christ calls a man, he bids him, come and die. That is what the salvation message is. This is the gospel, come and die. Much different than how we present the gospel today. Every, have everything like Friday. Uh, if you become a Christian, everything will be rosy. You get to go to heaven and everything is perfect. Bonhoeffer was a Lutheran pastor during Hitler's rise to power in Germany in the 30s. He uniquely understood the cost of discipleship as he founded underground seminaries and wrote literature to encourage the German Christians during Hitler's rise to power. Eventually, he was in prison and sent to a concentration camp during the war. And eventually, he was hung after being accused in a plot to assassinate Hitler. After denying themselves and taking up the cross, then you are able to follow Jesus. Then, and only then. That is what Jesus is calling for. He's calling for a single-minded pursuit of the kingdom of God. As James says, a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. And we have pews full of people who profess Christ but are unstable because we're double-minded. We say we want to follow the things of Christ. We have some sentimental value of the things of Christ, the things of the church. But in reality, I want to please myself. I want to enjoy my life. I, I want to do what I want to do. That's many of us. That's the battle that you and I have every day. This is what Jesus is calling for. The gospel of Jesus Christ demands our full attentions as it should. The apostle Paul declares, I'm not ashamed of the, of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So the gospel is, willing, is, is, is good for us to pick up. It will be, it will be a matter of ridicule, public ridicule for us. For many of us, it will mean that we will be outside the sphere of influence in our society and maybe even division in our own home. J.C. Ryle, a British pastor in the 19th century, in a sermon on what does it cost to be a, a true Christian, writes this. I believe it's here on the monitor, I think, for you. He says, I grant it costs much to be a true Christian, but who in his sound senses can doubt that it's worth any cost to have a soul save. When the ship is in danger of sinking, the crew thinks nothing of casting overboard the precious cargo. When a limb is mortified, a man will submit to a severe operation and even to amputation to save life. Surely a Christian should be willing to give up anything which stands between him and heaven. A religion that costs nothing is worth nothing. A cheap Christianity without a cross will prove in the end a useless Christianity without a crown. And unfortunately today, there are too many that want heaven without crown. Or excuse me, they want it without a cross. They want the crown. They don't want the cross. But to get the crown, we must bear the cross. Now to clarify these requirements and expectation. Jesus gives two common sense illustrations going back to Luke chapter 14. Look at verse 28. 
Jesus goes on, for which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man to begin to build and was not able to finish. Jesus is highlighting the danger of foregoing a cost-benefit analysis. I know that's a big term, but it's a cost-benefit analysis before beginning a larger difficult task. In other words, do I have enough cost or enough money to finish what I want to have built? That's the benefit. The first illustration of someone building something but running out of money or labor to complete the project. That's what we're seeing here. The incomplete structure would serve as a testimony to the foolishness and lead others to mock him. Give you a couple of illustrations here on the screen. Here's a, here is a, a temple or a church that was started in 1882. And I don't know if you can see it as well there, but you can see that there's still scaffolding up there. The man died uh, very quickly, after, very shortly after um, uh, beginning the project. Until this date, it is still not finished. They're hoping that it may be finished in less than a century, they thought. But still, after 2026, or 2026, in four years is when they figure that they will finish this building that finally started, or, or excuse me, that started in 1882. Still showing that not everything gets done on time. You can't blame that on, on union work there, by guys, on that one. Second one is the Cincinnati subway. Ever heard of Cincinnati subway? Nor has anyone else. Started for World War II. They had to stop it. Never were able to finish it. Now it's for the homeless. The homeless have found a home, and it. it's never been completed. It's been abandoned. And for California, a train going nowhere fast. It's a boondoggle. It's now been started at 33 billion. It's now been inflated to 77, and it can jump to 98 billion dollars. The completion date has been pushed back repeatedly. It was in June 2018. It was set for completion in two, uh, 2033, 13 years behind schedule. Even still, we're throwing money behind it. And every time we see it, it's just become a mockery. In verse 31, Jesus speaks of the plight of a king who fails to count the cost. Look at verse 31. Or what king, Jesus says, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he's able with 10,000 to meet who comes with him against 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. History is full of kings and emperors who make this mistake of starting a war or go, going to war only to find themselves either losing or having to capitulate and ask for surrender. Think of Napoleon invading Russia in 1812. He winds up being devastated. Or George Custer in uh, 1876, who did not bring a Gatling gun with him, thinking that he didn't need it. Could you imagine that story if he had brought his Gatling guns? Do you know what a Gatling gun is? One that you turn and it just shoots multiple bullets? We would not be talking about Custer and what a failure he was. Adolf Hitler, Soviet invasion. You and I might be speaking a different language if he wouldn't have invaded the Soviet Union back in 1941. He makes, a, he makes a treaty with him and then turns around and breaks it before the United States is at war. Or think about what we're looking at today with Putin and Russia invading Ukraine. And now how embarrassing it is for Putin and he can't find a way off. We have to do a cost-benefit. You need to look. Do I have enough to complete it? In verse 33, Jesus then puts this together. Look at verse 33. 
He says, so therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. What Jesus is calling for is a radical self-renouncement of our claim to the throne, a denial of ourselves and as objects of our admiration. The ESV study Bible editor notes that self-denial means letting go of self-determination and replacing it with obedience to and dependence on Messiah. It involves giving up a self-centered life for self-sacrifice. We are called to love Christ with our whole heart, which entails our will, our thoughts, and our affections. In other words, we need to get to the point where our, our thoughts are about centered on Christ. And our affections are not based on things that we love that bring us pleasure, but on what brings God pleasure, what brings him joy, what glorifies him. And then we're making choices then based on that goodness. And everything that we do glorifies God. Theologian uh, Voss writes that Jesus requires of a disciple, listen to this, he requires of his disciples of all earthly bonds and possessions which, which would dispute God's supreme way over their life. So let me ask you, just real quickly, what is in your life is in dispute with God? What is something in your life that is at war with God's control over you? It could be alcohol, it could be drugs, it could be, it could be uh, pornography, it could be, it could be sexual experiments, it could be, it could be money, career, it could be your family. These things which take all your time, your energy, that have prominence and, 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 and things in which you build your life around. What is in your life is at war with God, which desires to be king. If we're honest, each and every one of us has something. That's the battle of sin. And we're to pick up our cross, deny that, and carry and battle against that each day. Because he warns in verse 40, 34, look at here. Here's the, here's the key. If you and I do not do this, we cannot be his disciples. Look what he says. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure power or pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears, let him hear. You see, salt serves as a preservative and a flavor enhancer and is an important resource for us. Yet if it loses its property, it is of no use. And my worry, my concern is there may be some here or there watching me or listening to me that you are of no use to God. And you are in danger of being thrown out. But yet you're proclaiming, Lord, Lord. But you're truly not a disciple of Christ. John MacArthur notes that disciples are marked, as you see here on the monitor. They are marked with an eagerness to please Christ by abandoning everything to his lordship. This willingness to surrender to divine authority is a driving force in the heart of every true child of the kingdom. It is the inevitable expression of a new nature. Let me ask, as we hold this up here, take a picture of your phone if you need to. Is, is this you? Does this describe your profession of faith? Does this describe the way that you live your life with an eagerness? If this eagerness is missing, if the lives of those that profess Christ are void of this willingness, then they are useless 
and disqualified to enter the kingdom of God. The phrase, he who has ears to hear, let him hear, calls us to discernment, to test and examine our lives, to count the cost. Now, what Jesus is teaching is that discipleship is not just informational or relational. And that's people what people live. Well, I'm a disciple because I read the Bible. I read books about the Bible. And I listen to my pastor. And I do a study group. And I small groups and all those types of things. So all we think is as long as I'm learning something about God, then I'm a disciple. Or some would say, no, I, I have a relationship. So there's many people that I, oh, I have a relationship with God. Me and God, we have something special worked out. And so salvation or being a disciple is having a personal relationship with God, with Christ. Love the terms. But it's more than just informational or relational. Discipleship, get this, is transformational. It transforms the person. Not just part of the person, but the whole person. Discipleship does include learning about God and all that he has revealed through his word. It does include bringing us into a new relationship. But if our lives are not transformed, then it is not true discipleship. John MacArthur, again in his book, The Gospel According to Jesus, writes that saving faith retains no privileges and no demands on God. It safeguards, safeguards no cherished sins. And some of you have some cherished sins that you need to avoid, that you need to put away from yourselves. There's no treasures, no earthly possessions that are more than Christ, he writes. We cling to no secret self-indulgences that says, well, this is just for me when I need it. Instead, faith begets a heart that longs to surrender unconditionally to whatever the Lord demands. The call to follow Christ will cost you your position, your prestige, your power, and your pride. To follow Christ comes at a very high cost, one that must not be relegated to a simple children's prayer or a quick acknowledgement of the basic facts. Jesus commands that any who would come and follow him to do their due diligence, lest they find themselves starting something that they cannot finish. And unfortunately, there are many people who have started something with no end result. Due diligence in general means to carefully and thoroughly research something or someone, a business, a product, or an opportunity, for example, to make sure that what you know or what you're learning or something about that product is correct. This could be about its values or its claims about what it can offer you. And if our mission here at OVBC and our vision is to make disciples and assure that ourselves that we are also the genuine article, then we must do our own due diligence in presenting the gospel to others or in examining our profession of faith. Jared Wilson tweeted out just this week, the mission of the church is to make disciples. Don't settle for just well-behaved pagans. You want to know what a well-behaved pagan is? Go to many Christian schools and you find well-behaved pagans. You may find it in your own family. Now, well-behaved pagans have some worldly good, but our goal is to make them into followers of Christ. It's more than getting people to look and act and talk the right way. It's about them living out the things of Scripture. 
Our decision to deny ourselves and pick up our cross to follow Jesus requires us to intentionally, sacrificially, generously, and cheerfully abandon everything to follow Christ. As Jim Elliott, the missionary who was killed while sharing the gospel with an Aka tribe, he said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he not, cannot lose. Let me say it again. He says, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. You and I are holding on to things that are going to be lost in the fires of heaven as he judges our works and our lives. Wood, hay, stubble. They have no earthly or, va- or heavenly good value. So what is it that we gained? If I'm to do my due diligence, if I'm due to a cost and benefit analysis, if I truly want to be a Christian, what is it that I gain by abandoning everything to follow Christ? Why is it worth it? If we're doing a cost-benefit analysis, what is the benefit of denying ourselves and carrying our cross? Well, as Paul writes, we gain the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. That should be enough. However, we are also forgiven of our sins. We gain a new relationship with the Father who adopts us as his children. We are empowered by the Holy Spirit to fight sin and to become more like Christ. But we also receive entrance in the kingdom of God. As Peter writes in 1 Peter 1, look here on the monitor. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Hopefully you already have that from when we studied 1 Peter, underlined, circled, highlighted. And that treasure is kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last days. Is being a disciple of Christ worth it? Yes, it is. We get heaven and so much more. So to do our due diligence says that it is worth the price. It is worth the cost. Take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews 11 if you would. Scripture is filled with men and women who counted the cost, who did their due diligence, and still chose to follow Christ. Men like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Daniel, Peter, John, and Paul, and many other women that are in the Scripture. But in Hebrews chapter 11, look at verse 24, we read of Moses. He's a great example of what God is calling us to do this morning. It says, by faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God, rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He did a due diligence. This is greater than that. He considered the reproach of Christ greater than the wealth of the treasures of Egypt. There's the due diligence, the cost-benefit. For he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who was invisible. He picked up his cross and followed Christ, so to speak. The Westminster Confession states that man's chief end, the reason why God has created you, the purpose in your life, why you are here on earth, is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. 
This is the goal of every true, genuine disciple of Christ. It is not enough to know doctrine or to do good works or to even look the part. You have to live it like it. Like, like, like it. You have to live as if you're a disciple. The proof is in the pudding. The proof of the pudding, an old idiom that says you got to taste it. It may look good. It may, it may, it may uh, swirl around good, but until you taste it, then you know whether or not it's good pudding. It doesn't matter if you were saved at a very young age and baptized twice. It doesn't matter if you attended church every time the doors were open or were active in the youth group. It doesn't matter how much you give, serve, and profess Christ uh, or to profess to love God if you haven't renounced it all. So how do we know we're a Christian? Because, man, this is tough. This is strong. You may be even struggling here today. Well, maybe, I, I don't know. All I said a prayer when I was, when I was in seventh grade or seven years old. Uh, all I know is I repeated the words. It's in my Bible. My mom wrote it down. I got saved on September 10th, 1972. And if any time I doubted it, I just look at that. Where I got a baptism certificate that the church gave me. Oh, they dedicated me with me. I have that Bible somewhere. Now you may say, I don't know now. I'm not sure. How do I find assurance? I want you to take two passages or look at two passages that inform us how we do that. It's going to be here on the monitor, but you may want to write them down. The first is 2 Corinthians 13, 5, where Paul says, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. So he tells us that we're to examine and to test ourselves. In 2 Peter 1.10, Peter says, Be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. So the mark of a true Christian is a life of examination and testing and making sure that our election is sure. Now examine means to scrutinize, while test means to prove or to explore. The difference between exam and testing can come as an example of a car. Imagine that you want to buy a new vehicle. I would not recommend it nowadays. I wouldn't even recommend buying an old a used car at this moment. But just imagine if you would, or you were going to. So first you would examine the cars in which you would study up the truck, the car you would like. You would look at its mile per gallon. You would look at its cost. You would look at all these things. You would look up the reviews, the prices. You may go and you may examine the cars that are on the lot. But even then, that's not enough to do, as most of us would do. We now need, not only have we examined it, we want to test that drive. So what are we going to do? We're going to take a test drive. We want to prove, does that car run smoothly? Does it look as the way? Does it drive in the way that I want it? So in both ways, we examine and test. To truly to be a disciple of Christ, we must examine our faith and put it to the test. This does not negate the work of the Holy Spirit's work in securing and in confirming our salvation, but it works alongside his holy, important work. So we must examine our lives. Does our life match up to the word of God? Are the fruits of the spirit manifested in our life? And by testing, are we fighting sin? Does, do other people look and say, yes, he is someone who has put away anger and jealousy and sensuality and all those other things that scripture tells us to do? You and I must be constantly examining and testing our lives. Let us not fool ourselves that we are Christians. 
if we have never truly counted the cost and decisively chosen to follow Christ. J.C. Rowell, writing at turn of the century of the 1800s, says this, there is a common worldly kind of Christianity in this day, which many have and think they have enough. It's a cheap Christianity which offends nobody and requires no sacrifice, which costs nothing and is worth nothing. That is a Christianity that many people confess or profess today. Let us not get discouraged in this area. But the Bible is written so that we may know that we have eternal life, that we have done our due diligence, that we have counted the cost and seen that Jesus is the treasure without price. It's the pearl of great price. Let's not get discouraged about our struggle with sin or our slow or lack of progress in sanctification. Let us find hope and encouragement that the Holy Spirit will sanctify us in the truth. Many times as we examine and we test, we say, man, I just don't seem to be growing fast enough. Well, continue to make your election sure. Find someone, a mentor to help disciple you, to work with you, to help you in those tough areas of life. Let us be faithful in presenting the offer of salvation through the gospel message that calls sinners to repentance and to bear fruit as a mark of repentance. In other words, it's not just selling people heaven insurance or heaven or, or hell insurance, you know, fire insurance. It's about telling them who God is. It's not enough to get people to repeat after you or to say a sinner's prayer. It's about showing them who Christ is and then making the decision to renounce it all. To get someone to just say, yeah, I believe in Jesus. Yeah, Jesus come to my heart. You have not done due diligence. You are giving them an assurance of something that they may not truly have. So you may say, well, how then do I handle it if I know someone, maybe I have a child or a husband or, or a, my wife or someone else in my family or a friend, maybe they, they profess Christ. They're like one of these three people, you know, uh, that, that we mentioned them before. They, they think they're a Christian, but yet their lives does not show it. One, do not confirm that salvation. It's not down there. It's good to remind them. Do you remember when you accepted Christ in junior church? Do you remember when you went forward for baptism? There's nothing wrong with reminding them, but do not use that as confirmation. My, my, my word of advice would be, you would not confirm their salvation, but you would pray that God would make that sure. Pray for them as one who is not a Christian. That's my prayer is, Lord, confirm the salvation of my daughter, of my, of, of my son, or to my wife, of, of my elders, of myself. Confirm that to us as, as, as well as you. Is confirm that I truly am a Christian. Above all, let's give thanks and praise to the Father who has saved us by his grace through the work of his Son that we may do good works through the Holy Spirit for his glory and our good. Let me end with this passage. I know it's been a tough one, but I want to encourage you. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. But it's a gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. But we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. We are not saved by works, but we are saved to do good works. That's the examination and the test and the proof which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in him. Let us do the due diligence, not only in our own lives, but in the lives of those we love and care for 
that we may present not only the gospel in the right way, that they too may know that they have eternal life and become disciple, but also in our own lives that we truly are walking in such a way that due diligence has been done. With every head bowed and every eye closed, I'm going to ask Randy to make his way up and also the worship team. I know I gave you quite a bit today and I went through it pretty quickly. Let's take a moment to just pray, to pause, to consider these words and this challenge. My goal is there's not anyone here today that does not know Christ. If you do not know, I want to share with you how you may know. If that's your case, then I'd ask you to see Randy or I later. Give me a text, write me an email, give me a call. Because we'd like to sit down and share with you how you too can become a disciple of Christ. You might be here and you, maybe you're struggling. You're not sure. You're, your life is marked. You know that you still have uh, hidden sins, secret sins, secret indulgences. There's sins that you still cherish. There are still activities that you do that you know are not Christ-honoring. And you're having a struggle giving that up. And so you wonder, maybe you're not a Christian. Well, let me give you, remember, we are saved by grace. Come to him, confess your sin, and he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And then if you're here this morning, you are a Christ follower, you know that for sure. Your job is continue to make disciples. It starts in your family, it starts with your friends, your family, and then throughout the world. Let us be part of God's work that he may be glorified. Randy, would you come and close us in prayer? We hope you have enjoyed this week's message. We encourage you to share it with others. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at info at orangevilla.org. Be sure and join us for next week's message by subscribing to this podcast. To learn more about our ministry, submit prayer requests, or to find ways you can help hear the gospel, visit us online at orangevilla.org. Till next time, we hope the grace and peace of God's love be ever present in your life.